This is the fifth in a six-part series by Terry Virgo on the Book of Philippians. The talks were first given to a gathering of senior international leaders from the New Frontiers family, and Terry has based them on Paul's apostolic relationship with the church in Philippi. The accompanying notes provide an outline to the series and also provide a number of quotations from helpful commentators. So here we see uh, Paul calling the believers in Philippi to a Christ-centered maturity. It's a rather sudden, stark change of style and uh, it's uh, difficult, I think, for us uh, to get behind it because apparently, and I'm certainly no Greek scholar, uh, there is a kind of staccato feel that opens this chapter. It's apparently full of rhetoric and powerful writing. It's a very skillful passage and it gets lost in translation quite a bit, but it is a, a call to them now to be on their guard, and first of all, he begins to warn them. Uh, what's called finally really should be translated furthermore. It's not really a conclusive word. It's talking about right for the rest. Uh, furthermore, uh, rejoice in the Lord. Yes, keep celebrating him. And uh, that's not just a, a kind of fun thing to do, but it's the best way of defending yourself from foolish people who want to add to you, who, who want to say to you, oh, you need to be circumcised, you need to keep the Sabbath, you need these issues that are going to come up. The best way to show yourself indifferent to these things is to be absolutely thrilled and delighted with what you already have in Christ. And so celebrate his complete provision for your need before God, making any other religious not religions, it's a misspelling, additions unnecessary. Hawthorne says the exaltation of spirit that flows from the free gift of God's grace is the best protection of all against opponents. Celebrating what you already have makes you indifferent to people saying, would you like to add uh, circumcision? No, thank you. I'm celebrating my full salvation in Jesus. Okay. So Paul wants to uh, just repeat these things. It's not um, repeating uh, rejoice again. It's repeating the things that are going to follow, the plural things that will follow. And he begins to come, as he does in other places, uh, against uh, the Judaizers that uh, kind of dogged his steps, that pursued him from town to town often, and tried to uh, impose law and legalistic practices on these freshly saved Christians who were celebrating grace. So he's saying to them, watch out, beware. And the use of language here is very strong. Uh, and uh, as I say, it's something in the Greek that's hard for us perhaps to get hold of. Uh, beware of is thrice repeated uh, in the NIV. I know it drops it, it just says beware of and then says the three things. But uh, in the NASB, it's beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the full circumcision. And it's a Greek word, blepete, and it's got a sort of force. Blepete, blepete, blepete. He's just saying one after the other, and it's coming with a kind of machine gun force. And uh, also, it's full of hostility, because the three things that he refers to, he kind of turns on their head. Uh, and, and turns them uh, around. We'll see what I mean as we come to each one. For instance, um, beware of dogs. And as Fee says, I love this, this metaphor is full of bite. <laughs> Since dogs were zoological lowlife <laughs> scavengers that were generally detested by the Greco-Roman society and considered unclean by Jews who sometimes used dog to designate Gentiles, which is a twist because uh, here are the Jews pursuing and saying you need to be circumcised. And he's saying beware of the dogs. He's turned it on its head. It's part of the kind of stylized writing here. And uh, I think for we in English, England, maybe even in the US, we, we have a wrong view of dogs. Uh, so, some, of you, some of you in other countries can identify with this very simply. Uh, I remember once I was... I was listening to a, a program, I came on halfway through it, it was on the radio, and I heard about these dog collars with diamonds and things on them, and I thought, what are these Roman Catholics into now? And they were describing these bejeweled dog collars, and I thought, is it Episcopalians, is it Catholics, what's he talking about? I'm waiting for the end, because I've come in halfway through, and I, think, I can think of their full robes, and, and you know, all their refinery, and now it's diamonds on their dog collars, until at the end... Now they're talking about dogs. 
<laughs> it was real dog collars and uh, not what we call clerical collars. And of course, we live in a generation in, in the Western world that spends millions of pounds on dogs. Not exactly the feel of Paul's day when he says dogs, he's not thinking of things that have been shampooed and wearing diamonds around their necks. He's talking about scavengers and uh, not. And as, uh, hold on, as Gordon Fee says, all right, we've got to get through a lot this morning. Okay. Gordon Fee says, dogs get universally bad press in the Bible. <laughs> okay. okay. So, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Again, that's a turn. These people think they're doing good. They're adding. They're helping you be more holy. Be circumcised. Keep the Sabbath. He's turned it on. He said, beware of evildoers. Blepete, evildoers. Uh, the circumcision party. Actually, Paul sees them undermining the gospel, therefore doing evil, not doing good. And then, thirdly, beware the false circumcision. As the um, NIV gets nearer there, the mutilators, it literally means the mutilation. And uh, uh, the two contrasting Greek words, um, circumcision is peritome. <laughs> Have we finished with the dogs yet? I will go into your coffee break. <laughs> that will silence him. <laughs> okay. So peritome to cut around, catatome to cut to pieces. Right? Brings tears to your eyes, doesn't it? Okay, so Paul, Paul declares war on this holy, holy circumcision. In Galatians, of course, he, he, he says, I wish they'd um, castrate themselves. I mean, he's really, he hates this stuff, and he's really attacking them, and uh, uh, forcefully against the whole thing, the mutilation. I mean, it's an outrageous thing to call the Jews. It, it's an incredible thing that he's conjured up this word. Um, that uh, just hits hard, especially in the Greek language, just takes the normal word and turns it around and makes it uh, a hostile attitude. Circumcision uh, would add a plus factor to grace, thereby actually undermining grace and giving people a basis for boasting in their flesh. And so we've got to say, no, we won't have that. Sadly, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones took that so far as to say baptism isn't important because it's adding to grace. Uh, which was sad that he emphasized, I mean, he was a Pido-Baptist. But uh, he would say Baptists are in danger of adding to grace. Now, we, are, we don't need to get into that, but it's, we just need to see that anything you add can take away from grace and therefore undermines grace. Any addition is, in fact, a subtraction. So we need to uh, be, beware the dangers of adding things. Beware the dangers. And Paul, we're familiar with this kind of stuff, really, and uh, says, um, we are the circumcision, uh, not they. And that's a wonderful boast. It's hard for us probably to get our minds back into that era and the thoughts and the ways of approaching these holy, holy things. They're rather distant from us, but these would have been very, very hot subjects in Paul's day. And he is ruthless and hostile in his use of language. After quite a gentle section, he suddenly comes in hard against... Uh, these things which he sees as messing up the gospel. And in our emphasis on grace, we need to be ruthlessly hostile towards anything and any mixture. And people uh, preach grace and then add to it and mess it up. And uh, it was good from the very beginning of our time together to emphasize our call to preach the gospel of the grace of God. That's what it is. It's the good news of the grace of God. That's the message. And so if we say, oh, well, you want to grace again. Well, this is the gospel. Of the, it's the good news of the grace of God. It's a new deal. And we must never be ashamed of it. Paul certainly wasn't and suffered greatly because of his commitment. And so he's saying we're the circumcision. We, former Jews or former Gentiles, are the new covenant people of God. The people that God, of God are now freshly constitu uh, constitu constituted in Christ 
And uh, we are these, and this is, these are the recognizable features. Uh, in contrast to uh, circumcision, which is merely in the flesh, uh, he says, now we're the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And uh, actually that's not just being charismatic worshippers, as uh, we could be tempted, tempted to say. It's not really what it's saying there. It's the Greek word, which is, uh, really means actually to serve a life of service. Now it has its roots back in the priesthood. Interesting enough, it was the word that was exclusively used for the priests, that they performed their worship within the temple. Only special people were allowed inside the temple. Very special people. Uh, but then it gradually got used more widely and began to be used more generally. And in the Septuagint, it's used more generally of any who offered spiritual devotion, that their life was in spiritual devotion, our service, our being here, if you like. It's or where you go back to, the things that you're going to do. It's not just, you know, the half an hour or an hour of singing in the Spirit, you know, worship by the Spirit. It's not that. I mean, it can include that, but it's talking about our devotional life. It is by the Spirit. It's nothing to do with keeping these old laws. And again, uh, Fee brings out that this is a, an interesting thing because the, the ones who were not allowed to do that in the Old Testament were the mutilated ones, if you remember. They weren't allowed it into the temple. They were outside. And so he's kind of saying, he's pushing that on. We're really offering uh, by the Spirit the authentic worship uh, of God. Not just in our Holy Spirit worship meetings, but a whole life of worship that is energized and empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit. We boast or glory in Christ Jesus, not law observance. We're not boasting in the law anymore. We're boasting in Christ Jesus. Boast or glory is one of Paul's favorite words, and he uses it over 30 times in the New Testament. No one else, or only twice others, uh, uh, twice used by anybody else. It's a great word of Paul's. He glories or boasts uh, in Christ. And so uh, we boast in Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. We're not confident in cutting bits of flesh off. We're not confident in fleshly things. Living by the Spirit has replaced fleshly law-keeping. And so it's interesting, you see, he puts it under that general heading. And, and Paul is de deliberately ambiguous. The works of the flesh, he says in Galatians 5, are these ugly things. It's also put under the same heading, religion. Circumcision, he puts it under the same heading, work of the flesh not going to please God. It's not the fruit of the Spirit in contrast. Love, joy, peace and all those. The works of the flesh ugly characteristics and religion, circumcision he sticks it all under the same heading. We need to be as ruthlessly clear as that uh, that we are not going to mix the two. We're, we're in a, uh, we've been called to that. It's a great privilege to wave that banner and live for that. And so uh, we need to Sorry, turned over two pages. So Paul's personal example is how he follows through. He gives his testimony. He argues the case in the first uh, two or three verses, and then he begins to speak of himself and uh, to, to make uh, an illustration of the sort of thing he's talking about. We said there's no future in the past. Uh, you know, he could say, been there, done that, but didn't bother to get the T-shirt. <laughs> he's already been there. Circumcision, he's done the whole thing. Circumcised. On the eighth day, as Hawthorne says, he says, an eighth dayer. That's the way it's in the Greek. He's, I'm an eighth dayer. That's the absolute elite. You know, I was not just like, you know, it says uh, Isaac, eighth day. Ishmael was 13, wasn't he, uh, before he was. And many of these proselytes, people who've been added to the Jewish uh, community around the nations, would have been circumcised later. He says, no, look, I'm the real, authentic thing. Eighth day. That's the way God said it should be. If you want to talk about circumcision, hey, I was there, eighth day. That's me. I'm authentic of the people of Israel. I'm already an Israelite. That's my background of the tribe of Benjamin uh, with Judah, one of the elitist tribes, uh, the tribe that was loyal to David, the tribe that had the first king, Saul. Uh, there's many, many places where uh, Benjamin is honored through the scriptures. It's one of the elite tribes, if you like, faithful uh, to Judah at the, uh, when the split came. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, extremely zealous. He makes similar arguments in Galatians. As for zeal, persecuting the church. He's not just uh, hot for God. He's going to go against any enemy of God. And so he's saying, no, I was 
very zealous for this. As to the righteousness in the law, blameless. Now, just notice what's in brackets there regarding observable outward conduct in Torah keeping, not to be compared with the inward reflection referred to in Romans 7, where he uh, takes the lid off a bit. It's rather like the young man that came to Jesus and said, what must I do? And Jesus said, keep the law. And his answer straight, came straight back. I've kept these from my youth. There's an outward observance of law keeping that was pretty simple, really. External law keeping. It's not reflecting what was in the heart. Uh, so he's saying, as to righteousness in the law, blameless. You wouldn't have found fault with me. I was an exemplary Pharisee. And, uh, but then he says, no, I count all that as loss. And uh, don't put any confidence in it whatsoever because now of Christ. All these things are loss, not only for the sake of Christ, but for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And uh, we touched on this earlier in the week, but we'll just see it again in this context. Here, he's not mere information, but personal relationship and intimate experience. We said earlier we can contrast these things a bit too much. But let's just see what Fee says. This is not simply coming to know the deity, that it is that, of course. But even more so, it is to know the one whose love for Paul, expressed in the cross and in his arrest on the Damascus Road, has transformed the former persecutor of the church into Christ's love slave, whose lifelong ambition is to know him in return and to love him by loving his people. There is something unfortunate about a cerebral Christianity that knows but does not know in this way. Now we said last week, what, or it's whenever it was here, yes, it was last week, um, the danger of setting those things too much against one another, saying I'm not interested in mere head knowledge. Now we can value, it's great to know more, but the danger is that horrible head knowledge that is arrogant, knowledge that puffs up. Uh, that's what the Bible says, knowledge puffs up left to itself and uh, Paul is saying no I don't want just knowledge that puffs up I want knowledge that builds up I want to know him I want to enjoy him I want to experience him and the former qualifications are now dismissed as rubbish in comparison all this elitism uh, that he goes a Hebrew of a Hebrews it's absolute trash to him now translation like filth perhaps captures both the ambiguity and vulgarity of this word in either case, it's hard to imagine a more pejorative epithet than this one now hurled at what the Judaizers would promote as advantages. Paul sees them strictly as disadvantages, as total loss, indeed as foul-smelling street garbage fit only for dogs. <laughs> it's a very graphic, strong statement. And so uh, we need to be ruthless in our hostility towards modern uh, legalism sometimes people think we're a bit harsh on it a guy spoke to me last week at brighton and said don't you think you're a bit harsh sometimes when you speak about these things and i said well they get in the way of the gospel and uh, they are confusing people about what really matters and paul is pretty harsh here and so we just need to uh, take his lead really he says follow me so i'm trying to do that the gaining of christ requires the loss of former things because to be rich in Christ means to be rich in him alone not in him plus other gains grace plus anything cancels out grace and that we might be found in him now we get into this whole passage which is uh, sometimes difficult in terms of uh, the now and not yet aspects of it so let's just read what Gordon Fee says here when does Paul expect this gaining and being found to take place. The answer lies with Paul's already, but not yet, eschatological perspective. And the verses that follow show that. Which determines his existence in Christ and serves as the basic framework for all of his theological thinking. On the one hand, the first point of reference is almost certainly future. Looking to the day of Christ, mentioned in chapter 1 verse 6 and the other places mentioned there. Such an understanding fits the future orientation both of the immediate context and of the letter as a whole. On the other hand, the modifying participle clause, having righteousness, is oriented towards the present. 
as is the final purpose clause, which is grammatically dependent on the present clause. He expects to gain Christ and be found in him on that day, on the day of Christ, precisely because he is already, this is already his experience of Christ. All right, so he's saying now, his ultimate goal, that I might be found in him, is always with that reference to that day. That, the, that this uh, epistle and all of Paul's writings constantly come back to, that in that day I'll be found in Christ. But he's saying that uh, he expects to be found in him precisely because he's already, that is his ongoing now experience. I am in Christ now. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. When we see him, we'll be like him. Our full glory is a future longing. But our experience in the present is the guarantee that we're going to be like that. We're enjoying the righteousness now. Now this passage goes on overlapping these things. How does he gain Christ? First, finishing with his own righteousness, which was based on law. That's ek nomu, out from law. And receive a new righteousness, which comes from God. Ek theo, from God, which is based on faith. It's a different righteousness. It's from God, not from law keeping. It's a gift. And as Lloyd-Jones says, if we're not clear about Paul's righteous, a teaching on righteousness, we should not understand any of his teaching. It is the first, it is the center, it is the doctrine out of which and from which he derives every other doctrine in his teaching. It is indeed pivotal. It is God's righteousness in the sense that it is God's way of dealing with the problem of righteousness. It is not the righteousness that God demands or requires. It is that which he provides. Of course, that's the battle that Luther had when he said he saw about the righteousness of God. He hated God because he hated that righteousness, scared the life out of him because he was a man really wanting to stand before a holy God. And then he had this blinding revelation that it's a gift of righteousness. Changed the history of Europe when the man saw it. And uh, I guess world history, really. This is such an important truth, a righteousness which comes from God alone. So this is uh, the, the hub of our peace and our joy. It's the gift of God that takes away all our striving and uh, means we're no longer dependent on law keeping because we've already got a righteousness, not based on law, but the righteousness which is from God, a gift. And Jesus is my righteousness and I can't say it enough. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Every day we wake up, he's my unchanging righteousness. Nothing I've earned, I haven't earned it again today, I will never earn it another day. And the day you stand before him, as we die by faith, as well as live by faith. And I don't know the torments yet that some people go through in dying, but you're going to keep believing that he's my righteousness. He's my righteousness. Every day, every day. And it's very important for us in our thinking. No, he's my righteousness today. It's so sad to read of some of the Puritans who got off course and began to get introspective and then didn't die very well at all because they got very scared. Did they have the, did they have the fruits? And they started looking at their own lives. Are there, are there proofs of righteousness in me? Instead of looking to the cross and looking to the gift of God, we keep looking there. He's my righteousness. Jesus is my righteousness. Of course we look for fruit, but we don't look to the fruit for proof. We look to Jesus. And we had that little tiff with Mr. Piper last year where we touched on that a little. But it's important. Jesus Christ, our unchanging righteousness, our place of peace and joy that we never go from. It's so important for us. Spurgeon was marvelously clear on that and we must be clear on it. The ultimate goal of being in the right relationship with God is knowing Christ. Let's move on from that because although we glory in what we've just been talking about, that Jesus is my unchanging righteousness, Paul doesn't make that the end. I, I hear of good athletes, not that I... Well, I'm a pretty good athlete. No, no. I, I, I hear that good athletes, they're not running for the tape, they're running for beyond the tape. And uh, here, we mustn't see having a righteousness as the tape. Because Paul doesn't see it as a tape. Because he sees it as a launch pad. Now that I have a righteousness, that I might know him. Because I'm now accepted, I can press through. Now it's sad when people make a lot of grace and don't see the point. I'm free now to press into knowing him because I'm accepted. 
I have a righteousness. I am not being rejected when I draw near. I'm not going to be preoccupied with my sin, my failure, my disqualifications. Oh God, isn't it terrible? Now I've got grace. Oh, hallelujah, I'm accepted. No, no, I'm accepted. So, wow, if I found grace, can I see your glory? That's what Moses was like. That's what, that was Moses' prayer. If I found grace, show me your glory. And so grace is not an end point, though we will fight for it. It is a door opening into that I might know him. Not just be righteous in his sight, but press in to a knowledge of the Lord. And so we don't, um, it's sad to celebrate the gift of righteousness if we don't celebrate it as our launch pad for pressing on into knowing him. The knowledge of him. That's how Paul moves on through this passage, that I might know him. And uh, the power of his resurrection. And it's interesting, it's the only time Paul uses that phrase. He usually talks about the power of God or the power of the Holy Spirit. In this context, he talks about the power of his resurrection. Along with the gifts of the eschatological spirit. Again, just say that word eschatological we talked about the other day. We must understand the coming of the spirit. Although as charismatics, we've made it a very personal thing. Have you got, been baptized in the Spirit yet? Do you speak with tongues? Oh no, I've got it. Oh, I've got this lovely feeling. We can, we can interpret the whole thing very personally. Paul is saying, the coming of the Spirit, it's an eschatological event. It's a proof the end times have started. And it, although we individually come into it, it's a big shout the end has started. The new creation is underway. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The new has started. Now we live in the old, but the new has started. We are people of the new. And to live in the flesh is not just a personal battle with the private individual. It's going back into the old thing that's finished. We're people of the new thing. We're the new man that's going to live on forever. To go back into the flesh is not just a little human internal battle. It's not just to be interpreted, oh, we have this inner battle, the spirit and the flesh. No, no, no. You have died, put it behind you. Why? Because we're a new people. And the coming of the spirit is proof. It's what's given at the end. It's the eschatological outpouring. It's the demonstration that new day has dawned. And we're saying like Noah in the midst of the flood, get in, get in. The, the ark wasn't just saving them from flood. It went with promise of a new day. God said there's going to be a new day that will come out of this. We are, we are inheritors of the new day. And the coming of the Spirit is a foretaste of the new day. It keeps pulling us into the future. And so we need to help people not to see the baptism of the Spirit, this little thing, and oh, I sometimes speak with tongues and I'm not really... No, no, it's so important. It's our identity. We're people of the new age. And the coming of the Spirit is proof of that. The church is a supernatural, dynamic community. We have passed from death into life. It's not only legally constituted, it is experimentally enjoyable. We're in it. And it's very important for us to see that. And so to go back into the flesh is to go back to that old condemned era. It's not going to last long. It's finished what you're doing in the flesh. Come on, in the spirit. Because this is the new age. It's not just, don't just internalize it. See it on a big screen. We're into the new generation, the new age. We're already ready for it. Now we've got more, we'll see in a minute, that will come in terms of physical. And it's important for us to see the eschatological spirit. And I know God wants to speak more to me about that. I know it, I feel it in my heart. We'll be saying more of this to our people as we go forward. I just put it before you, and I don't know anyone like Fee who is so helpful in setting it out. We know that John Wimber talked about it. He got a lot from Eldon Ladd and so on. But the spirit, the coming, what's ahead of us? We need to keep pushing into it. A lot, so I'll just read on from this. Along with the gift of the eschatological spirit, it was the resurrection of Christ that radically altered Paul's and the early church's understanding of, the pre of present existence as both already and not yet. In Jewish eschatological expectations, these two events, above all, would mark out the beginning of God's final wrap-up. Very early on, the church recognized that the, that the resurrection, Christ's, had already set the future in motion. Paul, in particular, saw the implications of this reality, which are spelled out in some detail in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection of Jesus, he argues there, 
makes our future resurrection both necessary and inevitable. Necessary because even though death has been defanged, as it were, it still remains as God's and our final enemy. But it will cease to be with our resurrection. And inevitable because Christ's resurrection sets something in motion as firstfruits that guarantees the final harvest. The first fruit, the resurrection's already started. Jesus is uh, risen again. We know no one after the flesh now. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We don't even know Christ after the flesh. We're new generation people. He's alive. And he has set in motion something that's inevitable for us. Hallelujah. We're a resurrection people. And it's with this kind of awareness that the early church could throw themselves in the arenas. Because we're people of resurrection life. And that was something deeply in their experience. We are a people whose understanding of life, both personally and globally, is totally transformed by Christ's resurrection. We can also experience the inherent power of his resurrection in our lives in a world of hostility and opposition. We see changing days. We, we go through perilous times. We see what's happening in Africa at the moment, China, other such places. We think of Pete and Hetty being just tossed about from place to place. Hey, we're a resurrection people. We're tiptoeing through these rocks, but we're, we're a resurrection people. We've got a future, and that's, these things affect our lives. It's not just, boy, he's got strong willpower. My, she's kind of bubbly. No, no, we've got a hold of big truths that have really affected our view of life. And that's why, dear friends, I'm not trying to knock anyone, but at home I find with some of our charismatic friends, they don't get into the Word. And they are feeling of subjective, how do I feel today? And a lot of, uh, they're not digging in to what can do them so much good. And so we must keep on in this kind of truth. Again, if I can quote Gordon Fee here, the power of Christ's resurrection is neither the only way of knowing Christ in the present, nor a way of knowing him independent from participation in his sufferings. In Paul's sentence, the two go together hand in glove. Thus, there is not a moment of triumphalism in the first phrase, but neither does Paul emphasize suffering in such a way as to diminish the power of Christ's resurrection as genuinely present for us. Paul knows nothing of the rather gloomy stoicism that's so often exhibited in historic Christianity, where the lot of the believer is basically that of slugging it out in the trenches with little or no sense of Christ's presence and power. On the contrary, the power of Christ's resurrection was the greater reality for him. So certain was Paul that it had happened. After all, he had been accosted and claimed by the risen Lord on the Damascus Road. And that Christ's resurrection guaranteed his own that he could throw himself into the present with a kind of holy abandon, full of rejoicing and thanksgiving. And that not because he enjoyed suffering, but because Christ's resurrection had given him a unique perspective on present suffering, spelled out in the next two lines, as well as the empowering presence whereby the suffering was transformed into intimate fellowship with Christ himself. I mean, some of these things are fantastic. And I will just commend to you uh, Fee's commentary on Philippians. I worked through it in my devotional life, I don't know, about 18 months ago. And I just found it so rich. I would commend him to you. Uh, it's just magnificent stuff. His, his, his insights are superb. And so, wonderful insights there, which we don't have time to comment on further. But seeing that mixing together, he says, not triumphalism but realizing that the very power is mingled with the sufferings and provides a context for more intimacy and fellowship with Christ. It's tremendous. So it's participation in his sufferings. Paul often refers to suffering as the norm for Christians. Although Christians' sufferings have no atoning significance, they're intimately related to Christ's sufferings and the reason why he suffered in a fallen world. Fee says, hence knowing Christ for Paul involves participation in his sufferings and is a cause for constant joy. Not because, of suf not because suffering is enjoyable, but because it is certain evidence 
of his intimate relationship with his Lord. And so these things are intermingled in the way Paul refers to them. Becoming like him, it says in the NIV, conformed is more reflecting the word, conformed, um, because the word has in it that word morph, you see in the middle of that, sumorph, fitsomenos, uh, conformed, uh, and death remind us of Christ taking the form of a slave and humbling himself to death. It's reflective back on the hymn we looked at in chapter 2. So Paul sees suffering as a way of, being, of conforming us to the likeness of Christ. Christ's sufferings were specifically for us. So these sufferings of ours are not general sufferings. You know, it's not just, you know, Wendy hurt her leg yesterday. You know, we're not talking about ordinary sufferings. We're talking about sufferings that happen as a result of our... Oh, I don't know, though. You were dancing with Neil. It's part of... <laughs> The price you pay for being a Christian. <laughs> no, it's, it's, spe it's special. It's special. It's related to the sufferings that were a result of following Christ. Verse 11, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul moves from knowing Christ in the present to its full realization in the future. Conformity to Christ's death in the present in which Paul is already strengthened by Christ's resurrection power, will be ultimately followed by his ultimate resurrection from the dead. For he says, in whatever way the future is realized, through resurrection or transformation at the coming of Jesus, the present involves knowing the power of his resurrection as key to participating in Christ's sufferings. But the final, complete knowing of Christ is not yet. Neither he nor they have attained to it. Nonetheless, such a future prize is the one certain reality of present existence and is thus worth bending every effort in order to realize. For him, Christian life is not simply a matter of salvation and ethics. It is ultimately a matter of knowing Christ. That's a wonderful statement. And that's again such a marker from legalism or indeed sometimes just a general view of evangelicalism or even zeal uh, to see, no, this is his ultimate goal, a matter not of salvation, and let's just add, nor even of vision, but of knowing Christ. And it's so important that we have that in our hearts, that that is our line, that we might know him. So too with the resurrection. Paul's focus is not on everlasting life or anything else as such. The goal of the resurrection is the prize for which Paul strains every effort in the present. It is Christ himself. It's not just, I'm going to see him. I'm not, it's not just, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to be where he is. I'm going to see him. Uh, his, his magnificent obsession. I'm going to be in his presence. And that is, that is our thought, or Paul's thought here. It's not just living forever. It's to see him, to know him, even as we're known. It's just overwhelmingly wonderful that these are the things that beckon us on. And so it's to see him. And some of the old hymns uh, reflect that. You know, it's not just living on, but where he will be there to see him, to know him. The goal then, not perfection for itself, but the prize of the full knowing of Christ. So the future is attaining that uh, experience of him. Verse 12, not that... Paul was clarifying something previously stated rather than introducing a new theme. Some Bibles make that a new paragraph. It's, it's just reflecting back. He wants to make clear that some aspects of our salvation are future and wrapped up with Christ's return. There is a knowing of Christ that will only happen at the culmination of time. That's what we're talking about. There is more ahead. There is a resurrection knowing of him. We mustn't think this is some sort of elitist thing for some Christians that are striving after. It's that which lies ahead for us. A pressing forward. I press on. I want to lay hold of this very thing for which Christ first laid hold of me. Christ's work came first. Paul's work is a response. He laid hold of me. I want to lay hold of him. Now I've confessed to this in the past that I've often used this verse wrongly. Confess it again here in case <laughs> uh, we weren't all present as it were. But I've often said 
that in terms of ministry. That I want to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of me. He had a, he had a, he had a that. I've used that phrase. When he saved me, he had a that. And I want to lay hold of that for which he laid hold of me. I've preached that often. I think it's wrong. And uh, I, I repent of it. Right? I believe... I believe... I, <laughs> you didn't take a notice anyway. Oh, good. Well, anyway. <laughs> I think that... I think in context... Now, I'll come back to it in a minute. Because I think it's justifiable. All right? So I'll come back to it in a minute. <laughs> But in, in context, in context, I believe it's seriously missing the point. That's why it's worth repenting about. Because, I mean, in context, we're saying, you know, who wants to be in heaven if it's not gaining Christ? So who wants to say on earth, the that is just the job I do? No, the that is knowing him. It must be. I want to lay hold of that. What was that? He wanted me to know him. I want to lay hold of that for which he laid hold of me. The greatest that must be a greater knowledge of Jesus. I want to do the things he had for me. But I think to reduce this passage to the job I've got to do, however glorious that might be, I think is to miss the flow of the passage. The passage is about Christ. He is Christ, is everything to Paul. For me to live is Christ. I want to lay hold of that for which he laid hold of me. What was that? It's full revelation of Christ. It's like saying, I married Wendy because I wanted someone to clean the house. See? That's the job. No, no. When God laid hold of me, he didn't just want me to do a job. When he laid hold of me, he wanted fellowship, intimacy, love. All right, darling? So <laughs> and there's also, for us, in the, in the Christian experience, <laughs> there's also the privilege of some tasks that are just really perfectly for us see I'm not wanting to miss that but I, when I saw this when I was looking at this actually some while back I publicly repented of it some while back that I suddenly thought no no I'm really missing the, the heart of this which is pretty serious it's serious missing <laughs> because if a heaven is to just be where Jesus is then how much more that now, that this is for what, what he... I want to lay hold of that for which he laid hold of me. Wow, to know him. To press in. That I don't say I've already attained it. I want more to know him. So, yeah, by all means, let's do the works that God's foreordained for us as well. So Paul says in verse 13, 14, I'm just rushing on there because uh, we never get it all done. So we just put the phrases, really. Uh, don't look back. Don't look back to Torah observance. We had this great word from Samir the other day, uh, based from Hebrews, about running this race, not looking back, straining forward for the goal. Same kind of idea, the prize for the upward call. Uh, everything started in the call of God. The, final, the prize of final culmination is knowing that Christ, uh, knowing Christ awaits. This is in contrast to verse 17, or 19, sorry, where he says, some have got their minds set on earthly things. How foolish, how stupid uh, that that was the case when all this is ahead of us. We're running forward. Uh, we're not just getting a job done. It's to know him. It's our highest prize. And we must be careful, dear friends. We're very busy servants of God. If I can say that to us all. You know, some, of us, some people in this room have got a phenomenal capacity. I mean, I'm just staggered sometimes when I think of what guys and ladies in this room do. It's awesome. The, the, the responsibility carried by some people in this room is breathtaking. We just need to be careful. No, no, no. My one goal, my one aim, my primary desire is to know Him. And we've just got to guard our hearts, guard our time, guard our motivations. Let's be careful. Paul got the balance. He's straining forward. And he said, well, if I die, hallelujah, here I go. We saw that in the earlier chapter. To die is gain. <laughs> Woo! Because why? Because to live is Christ. Not to live is Spain. I must get there. As he wrote to the Romans. He was full of vision. The guy burned with passion for the nations. But he says, no, no, life is Christ. So we must get that. Or we'll, we will dry up and burn out and become boring and difficult to live with. Because we're just consumed with the vision. 
So we've just got to get it right. And it's for me one of the reasons I felt, let's submit ourselves to an epistle while we're together. We could have made every session what the second sessions are, which are hugely important. And it's not to put any of that down. It's wonderful, wonderful balance. But I wanted us to submit ourselves to an epistle to see what, where the emphasis comes to us. And we submit ourselves to revelation. And so here you see Paul's heart. And then he, um, his application and final appeal. Paul now uh, uses his testimony as a basis for appealing to them. He says, this is how it is for me. This is how I feel. I, le I leave all behind. It's just trash and comparing, compared with knowing Christ. That's my longing. Now he turns his testimony into an appeal to them. And uh, he says, now you have this mature mindset. Uh, let those of us who are mature, and notice Paul puts, it's us, though it's we. And it's interesting how Paul does that. He slips into that first person plural. Let us, therefore, uh, who ha let's have this attitude. And he begins to make the invitation. Uh, he invites them to, invite, uh, to imitate his life. That's the third time he's done it in the epistle. The other two references there. Challenging for us in leadership. Just imitate me and you'll be all right. That's a great thing to say, isn't it? Scares the life out of you. But uh, Paul, Paul's unashamed, unafraid to say that. Sadly, many, many walk as enemies of the cross. I tell you, weeping, it says in the text. Matthias says Paul was a great weeper. You see, so often in his letters, I'm with tears remembering you. With tears, I pray for you. Uh, Paul was a great weeper. He was an emotional man. I often think of dear old CJ. I was with him recently. The guy doesn't waste any of his emotions. I, I sometimes feel I live in here and he lives the whole thing, you know. <laughs> you know, one minute he's in hysterical laughter. You wonder if he, he's just going to break up. And the next minute he's sobbing his eyes out and folding this sticky piece of tissue up. And, goes, <laughs> and he's, he's, he's having the whole gamut of emotion. And... Uh, and I think, God, I don't want to just live in here, a boring person. And uh, he has the whole thing. And Paul is often in tears. And he talks about rejoicing. This epistle's full of rejoicing. And so let's not, let's not just live in a narrow emotional sphere. And yet Paul, Paul was an intellectual of the highest. I mean, who can compete with his intellectual skills? Yet he was a man of huge spread emotionally from massive joys to sorrow and tears. Let's not, let's not just play the, you know, the middle of the keyboard. Let's get, use the whole keyboard. Let's be open to God. Let your spirit soar. Uh, let God open us up. And, uh, you know, when did you last cry? When you were in prayer. And Paul says, I pray for you daily with tears. And uh, when you say, God, help us too busy to pray too busy to cry in prayer we just managed to get 10 minutes in well you don't get very tearful so you know I'm not trying to be funny really I just feel it's you know these things don't come like that and so there's a there's a Paul says these are enemies and he says I tell you weeping I don't often tell you weeping about groups that have missed the way I've made passing reference to it here but Paul says these guys have missed the way I tell you weeping he's writing he's crying and so, God help us. We're still very shallow people. I say that, I am. And so he says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, who glory in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. We won't look at all those phrases. And then coming towards the end here, basis for his appeal. The heavenly citizenship now and to come. A classic example, again, of Paul's already and not yet perspectives he starts with the already our citizenship we referred to that at length in an earlier session how he uses that citizenship thing particularly here in the Philippian letter uh, the emphasis comes to the not yet our ultimate transfer to his glorious state and so he's got this wonderful verse verse 20 our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the saviour the Lord Jesus Christ. And Fees says here is vintage Paul, whose thoroughly eschatological outlook, namely, we're looking for the Saviour, 
and Christological focus is the savior we're looking for repeatedly merge in climactic moments like this. We're living for the future and the future includes the savior. And they're there in that lovely verse. We await for a savior. Paul rarely uses savior for Christ in his writings. It combines one of the Old Testament names for God. The Lord's our savior. He delivered us like a great him that uh, Neil sang out from Exodus 15 this morning. He's our saviour. He delivered them out from Egypt. But also it challenges the common name for Caesar. Caesar was seen as a, the liberator of Philippi. As so often armies like to call themselves. We came to liberate you. And uh, uh, he was known as the saviour. And, uh, and so Paul is being very provocative really in calling Christ the saviour. He's, he's uh, uh, affecting, as it were, two things. Who will transform our lowly bodies, says in the NIV, the body of our lowly state, says in the NAS. Fee helps us with this verse, lest we should misunderstand it. The our and his, in both cases, go with humiliation and glory, respectively, not with body. Thus, it is not our lowly bodies, but the body that belongs to our humiliation or that belongs to his glory. Thus, the body itself is not lowly, but it is the locus of present suffering and weakness. Hence, the body of our present humiliation, in contrast to the body that shall be ours in glory. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Or what he's saying there? It's important we don't see, uh, as again, just to make the point, I think he does make the point here, Paul is not expressing contempt for the body. As again, I often have. Neither in the form found in the King James, our vile bodies. Do you remember the old King James used to say, our vile bodies? You know, it was here, Lloyd Jones' voice coming through, our vile bodies. Uh, which, <laughs> which sounds far more dualistic than Paul could ever be. See, again, in the, the Greeks had this dualistic perspective that the body was to be despised. And that isn't a Christian perspective. And so it's not so much our vile bodies, but our bodies that are in this lowly condition, this passing age, this age that's cursed. But now, soon, we're going to have a body that's appropriate to the glorious age. Now, of course, it will be a glorious body, but it's the age that's glorious, and it's the age that's vile, if you like, or hu of humiliation. We've got bodies appropriate, and uh, we're going to go on, to hallelujah, to to have a new body that's appropriate for the glory that's awaiting us. Uh, we'll not float around as disembodied spirits. Our bodies represent the point of continuity for the future, but their form will be different. We look forward to a body appropriate to glory. Right? There's going to be a, a, a body. We will know one another. We find that probably 1 Corinthians 15 deals with this more. We haven't time really, have we? So, uh, just to see that the body will be appropriate to glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Here Paul uses language about Christ that elsewhere is used only of the Father. And so he is, uh, uh, he's using great phrases about Christ. He is able to subject all things to himself. All authority belongs to Christ. He's in control. So we're not merely to await the end, but eagerly press toward the goal. Hallelujah. And final appeals to steadfastness and unity. Paul demonstrates his deep affection. I love this phrase. I've preached on it many times. My brothers, my beloved. It's slightly lost in the way we usually translate it in NASB. has my beloved brothers whom I long to see, which isn't exactly what it means. And the actual Greek is my brothers, my beloved, my longed for which may well include long to see, but it's broader than long to see. My joy, my crown. I mean, I think that is absolutely awesome attitude of an apostle for a church or any leader for a church. They're our brothers. They're not our pew fodder. They're not our members. You know, they're our brothers. And uh, they're beloved. And if, if they're not, we're in trouble. And we need God. Agapitoi. We love them. Well, beloved, so you'll find that he talks about it elsewhere. Uh, Paul often just uses that word, agapitoi, my, my loved ones. And uh, we've got to ask God to just uh, put that in our spirit. My longed for, 
And that's not just longing to see. It's, it's ambition. Ambition for them. My joy. It's when it stops being a joy. When you say, God help. And uh, I think many a, many a son or daughter of a pastor has problems when they hear their dad preach and then come home to lunch and hear him complain. Those people. That's funny. What church? He said, you know, we just, if they're not our joy, we're in trouble. And Paul could rejoice even over Corinthians. There's got to be consistency. They really are our joy. And crown. And there's that eschatological thing again, that the crown. My relationship with them is wrapped up with my eternal glory. We're not just pastor. You know, we'll be here for a little while. As John Lamferman said the other day here from the, from the front, you know, about pastors... You know, well, you'll be here for a couple of years. We're here to stay. You know, just professionals who come through, not really adjoined to the people. The way ministry was in the New Testament, they were joined in such a way, you're my crown, ultimately. We're tied together for the whole thing, my crown in that day. And I'll never forget once I preached on that verse in Nepal, many years ago, actually. And I was exhausted. I remember I was really tired. We'd been out there three and a half weeks. We finished at Kathmandu and... Uh, I remember I preached this sermon and I sat down. I was so tired. And they broke bread. And it was a moving moment. I just remember looking. My eye just fell on the bread, broken bits of bread left. And I felt God said this right into my heart. I preached it. And it's like he said it to me. My brother, my beloved, my longed for, my joy, my crown. I was absolutely ruined. I just, oh God, that you would say that to me. And that's what God says to every one of us. My brother, my beloved, my joy, my longed for, my crown. We're not just workers. He's passionately love, loves us. And to let God say that to you sometimes, make time, let him say it to you. Sit down, let him tell you it. My brother, my beloved, my longed for, my joy, my crown. That's how he sees you. And it, it's in as much as Paul was a man in Christ, that that life was flooding through him to the church with all the longings that Christ mightily inspired within him. So it's important for us to see this. And then, gosh, we've run out of time. That's all that naughtiness at the beginning. Um, (laughs) Paul appears. Now, see, this is, to be honest, is the nub of much of what's being said because now he's coming to these two people. And there are problems in in the church at Philippi, and who knows, we're not told much about this, and it's maybe the loving kindness of this apostle that he kind of puts a a veil over it, and yet he's not scared to mention names. Often, relational problems in churches actually do finish with people, individuals. That's where it happens. One person, two people. There may be parties identifying with these two people, but it can can be these two people that, that actually start it. And uh, it's important that, we, that we, we just see it. He says, now come on, live in harmony in view of everything we've been saying. Have the same mindset. He's now particularizing what he said generally back in chapter 2. Come on, guys, you two ladies, get it right. And he, he does honor them. He calls them as his co-laborers. He expresses real affection for them. And he says to his true comrade, we don't know who that is, help these two women. So Paul's call to unity throughout the letter finds expression in two particular people whom he addresses with affection and respect. Their names are in the book of life, he says in the verse. Only referenced in Paul's writings to that. And they need the help of the body. Love and tenderness are very evident but urgency for the sake of the gospel must lead to harmony for the future. Now that's, um, although it says 6, 7, that is actually, 7 is a blank page. We pray. Father, we do ask you please that we may live in the good of the word of God. Lord Jesus, not to only look at it and uh, be blessed by Paul's amazing insights, but also our lives. Help us one to one. Lord Jesus, these names are meaningless to us in a sense. We don't know anyone called this, but we do know real people who sometimes get out of step with one another. And we just cry out to you that you really help us. Lord, please, for the sake of the gospel, give us success 
in taking this lowly stance. And Lord, help us also to be clear on grace issues and not to mess up the gospel by priding ourselves in anything other than the righteousness of Christ. Give us a holy passion to know you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, win our hearts, win our affection, win us, Lord, that for us it really will be that heaven is where we see you and that for us to live is Christ. Lord, we just know we're very busy men and women. Lord, some ladies here, little children, many demands. Lord, a church, and now trying to support a man traveling. God, you know. And Lord, we just say, give us grace to, Lord, breathe in and enjoy your love, to experience your kindness, your favor, your personal delight in us. Lord, help us to find time to let you breathe into our hearts that we're your beloved, that you long for us. Lord, we don't have to earn marks to get your smile. We thank you. It's all free. And we just want to receive it and enjoy it and let it flow over us continually so that it can flow through us to others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes the fifth part of this six-part series.